you would turn to 1 Peter tonight, chapter 5. I had a good talk with Ed and Carol Candy this week, and they wanted me to express their, say hello to everybody at Faith Baptist Church. That's exactly how they put it. So I'm doing that tonight. Hopefully we'll see them soon, they said. First Peter 5, verses 6 through 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I want to bring, as uh, we begin tonight and kick off our talk on anxiety, I want to bring an important principle to your mind that is foundational when you're considering any of the counseling kind of issues that we're going through in this series. And that's the cause and effect principle. Um, Cause and effect, root and fruit, source and symptoms, any of those ways you want to put those two things together work. Um, And tonight I I want to impress on you how crucial it is to be able to know the difference between the two. And you might think that's simple and that's obvious, but it really isn't in a lot of areas in life in our world. Um, I would warn you, if you confuse these two, or more importantly, if you swap these two, and by that I mean you treat symptoms as sources, um, it will be devastating in your life. Um, If you reverse them, if you swap them, there will be no real or lasting changes possible in your life. Let me give you some examples of how important this principle is. If you're having a problem with your car and there's a noise every time you drive it, well, the answer isn't to get a noise dampener and put it on your car near where the noise is coming from so you don't have to hear it so that you can drive along in silence. Now that takes care of the noise, but the noise is what? Well, the noise is a symptom. And and I've had enough older cars to know that those noises mean there's something wrong. In fact, sometimes the louder the noise, the worse the problem. And uh, that you can't, you got to find out what's causing the noise in your car and actually address what? The cause of it. Otherwise, your car is going to be devastated over time. Temperature in your house. If you are, you go home or you come home from vacation, it's really cold in your house and, and you say, wow, it's so cold in here. I can't believe the temperature is this low. I didn't change the settings or anything. And so you go, wow, it's so cold. Well, I think the answer is to uh, take our three plug-in portable heaters, plug them in in each room and make everything warm again. And, and that'll make it warm again but those are symptoms, right? I mean, it's cold in your house. That's a symptom. But we've got to find out what's causing it. It's the furnace not working. It's the pilot light out or whatever it might be, right? But plugging in portable heaters isn't going to address the cause. Um, you have five cavities. And you say this, I'm going to go to the dentist 
and I'm going to have him fill those cavities. Now that'll solve the problem for those, but what's the real problem? Well, I ask you, well, how do you do with your teeth? You know, I really never brush them. Well, that could be a problem, right? I mean, you might be able to fill the teeth. That would solve the immediate case with those. But you know, the real problem is, is you need to learn how to take care of your teeth, starting with brushing them on a daily basis. You have lung problems, and you go to the doctor, and, and you really have trouble breathing, and you're coughing all the time, and you think, wow, I need to get some lung treatment. Well, the lung treatment would be necessary, but if you've been smoking a pack a day for 20 years, and you're not going to stop that, I don't think the lung treatment is really ultimately the answer. Probably the most common one for me I could think of is I, over the years I've counseled many people in their marriage and they come to me with or without their spouse and they come to me and say, Pastor Walker, could you help me? We're having problems in our marriage. And they begin to tell me, here's our problem. You know, we're just not good with money. And it's usually one or the other, not both. Uh, you know, I'm frugal, they're not, and we spend money, blah, blah, blah. Or they tell me, oh, you know, my husband, he doesn't really communicate well. And, you know, I try to do all the talking, but he kind of sits around, doesn't ever say anything to me. We don't have a lot of conversation going. And so they'll tell me it's financial. It's, it's, you know, communication, or it's, and they name a number of other things. And, and what they tell me usually is a symptom. The reason they, they don't spend their money right, that's a symptom. And they don't have a good relationship because they don't talk together. They don't have the kind of relationship. There's not the love that there should be there. And they, and they, and they, but those are symptoms. And t- unfortunately, in a lot of marriage books today, conferences, and even counseling, uh, people, try, you, you, we want techniques. Please give me three points about how I can be a better communicator in my marriage. Help me to have the Dave Ramsey manual and go through about how to better use my finances. And there's not anything wrong with those things, and they certainly have their place. But if we address the external issues without ever touching the root or the cause of all of those things, why do you spend your money that way? Why is it that you don't talk to your spouse? If you don't address the, co- the cause and the effect, it's going to be an issue, and nothing of really lasting change is ever going to take place. If you read the DSM-5, which is a secular book, the Diag- Diagnostic Statistic Manual, five means it's been five versions, which gives you an idea of how things change in the modern psychology world. Here are the effects of anxiety. Ready? And there are more. Fear, depression, Headaches, nausea, stomach problems, social withdrawal, sweating, shaky, shortness, shortness of breath, chest discomfort, hyperventilate, and more. Now those are all things that can happen uh, when you struggle with anxiety. But here's what you got to get. Those are not the causes. They're not the causes of anxiety. They are the effects of anxiety. They are responses to the consequences of the way that we respond to the things in our life that push us to be anxious. Some of those consequences are short-term, some of them are long-term, but they all have to do with how we express or how the effects of anxiety have taken hold in our lives. But if we treat those symptoms as if they are causes, we'll do what most of the world does, and that is find medication for them. And so you'll get a medication so that you won't be so sick to your stomach, and you'll get a medication that will calm you down, and you'll get a medication that will deal with all kinds of the symptoms. And and here's why, because we're not into the 
root of the problem, we're into the fruit of the problem. And we are interested in the effects and how it's hurting us and not what the root of it is. That it's sometimes the Effects are so great, we may need a medication to calm us down so that we can actually be ready to get a counseling situation going. But what we can't do in life, whether it's anxiety or any other emotional issue that we're facing, is to only address the symptoms without addressing the sources. Because when we do that, let me say it again, we will not see any permanent or lasting change. Why do people do that, Pastor Walker? Why is it in our world and why is it even amongst Christians that we too often settle for trying to address symptoms and not sources. Because too often, even amongst God's people, there are some who have bought into the lie that psychology, secular wisdom, is more scientific and that if we use the medical model, and that I mean by this, that when you cause certain things, anxiety, we like to call them today in our culture, diseases. And we like to call them disorders. Now that is man's wisdom and that's secular wisdom. That is not God's way of looking at them. They are not disorders or diseases like a medical condition, like you have cancer. You don't have anxiety like you have cancer. They're not. Anxiety is not a disease and it is not a disorder. It is a choice that we have in responding to what's going on outside of us or inside of us. And what we need to do is come back to the fact that here's what our identity is in Christ. We are not victims. We are victors. We have responsibility. And we don't like to see that today because a lot of us have crowned psychologists and psychiatrists as experts because they are medical people. And pastors now have been marginalized to say that Pastors, God himself at times, and even the Bible is only good when the problem you're facing is, and I quote, spiritual. So it has to do something with sin or something directly related to what we would categorize as spiritual, then the Bible and God and the pastor have some relevancy and use. But when it comes to this kind of other stuff, emotional stuff, we better stick with the experts. Um, We would say to pastors today, a lot of people stay in your lane and do what you were meant to do. And when we take that approach and believe those lies, can I say it honestly, we do it at great cost. We have too often settled for feeling better instead of being better. We have chosen a man-centered approach to discussing and solving our emotional struggles than rather a God-centered approach, which is the reason why I chose tonight a 1 Peter 5 passage. This passage tonight is going to give us three biblical sources of where anxiety attacks come from. And I'm not using anxiety attack, meaning I'm panicking all of a sudden and I get out of control. That's, I know that, that happens and that's the world's thing. I'm saying how anxiety actually attacks you. Okay, so just so you're clear on that. So three biblical sources of anxiety attacks, how anxiety comes after us, so to speak although that's not really honestly how it works, but, and our proper responses to each one of these attackers, all right? So there's going to be three of them. You're familiar with them. Uh, Maybe you've never seen them in this text before, but they're there. Let me give them to you or unpack them one at a time. First anxiety attacker is the flesh, and that I mean yourself, okay? Five, six, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, 
participle, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now here's what we don't do, but this text does a very good job of it. And I want to explain how pride and anxiety are connected. It's going to shock you a little bit, but stick with me. I'll say it out front and then I'll explain. Pride is a cause of anxiety and anxiety is an effect of pride, okay? Pride causes, is a cause, not the only one. Pride is a cause of anxiety and anxiety is an effect of pride. The verse, verse six starts off, therefore, and that refers back to the preceding paragraph, one through five, particularly the verse right before six, which is five, and it refers back to telling us that pride or struggling to keep humble is a problem not just for some, but for all of us. Look at verse 5. It says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to elders. Put yourself under. This is a word that means submission. It's used a number of times in this book. It's used in chapter 2 and verse 13, where, get this, it says, everyone be subject to government, or those who are in charge, including the emperor. So there's the term, be subject, 2.13. It's used again in 2.18, servants be subject to your masters. It's used again in chapter 3 and verse 1, wives be subject to your husbands. And then it's used another time in our text. So here you get the idea. No matter what category of relationship that you find yourself in, citizen to a government, slave to a master in the first century, or wives to husbands, or people to one another, especially elders in a church when you're younger. Here's the problem. In every area of life, in every relationship of life, here's what can happen. Pride can ruin it. Unless we learn to submit to authority in all of these human levels and also in God's level. So here's what he says. Pride Not having humility, in other words, is a thing that we all struggle with. We all struggle with submitting to our bosses. We struggle submitting to our spouses. We do. We have struggled submitting to other people in the church um, at times that we don't like, don't agree with, or are against their viewpoints minimally. And because we all struggle with pride— And by the word, pride is a compound word in English, which means to abundantly or hyper, literally hyper shine. In other words, you want to make yourself look really, really good, really good. Because we all struggle with that pride, to some degree, we're all going to struggle with anxiety because it's a root cause of it. Three times, look at the text. In verses five and six, when pride is mentioned, three times humility is given as the opposite solution to that very source of our anxiety. Verse number five says, be clothed with humility, not once in a while try to express it, but put it on like it was the whole outfit. In other words, pride is such an issue and we need humility to such a degree that we don't just put the humble shoes on, we put the humble wardrobe on. Do you get what he's saying? I mean, clothed with it. Not just the shoes, not just some gloves or a nice humble hat. So to, no, the whole thing. From, be completely clothed in it. Let it be what characterizes and marks every aspect of you, and particularly in context, the relationships you have with others. And he says again in verse 5, God gives grace to the humble. So he's not just saying modern, secular, humanistic humility. 
No, a different kind of humility. This is the God-given humility that only comes from his grace. This is a humility that's only possible to the degree to which we are saved and know him. That kind of humility. And he says again in verse 6 for the third time, it needs to be something that God gives you, but something that you take responsibility for as a choice because it says reflexive pronoun, you humble yourself. So this is not something you, oh God, give me humility and God's going to zap you through a prayer. No, it's a characteristic that through the spirit and word of God you develop. It's a discipline that you work at in your life. Now see, this is why in the text, the quotation in the passage is Proverbs 3.34. And he says, here's why, because God gives, what? Grace to the humble, but what does he do? He resists the proud. That's a proverb. And here's what God says by even using that verse, that if you think that you're going to control your anxiety, that you're going to wipe out the root of pride, and I'll tell you why it's a root and how it's a root in a minute, but let me just tell you this, starting off this, this is why we need biblical counseling. This is why we need biblical counseling and not secular psychology. You know why? Because we need God's wisdom, not man's wisdom. James says you need a wisdom that is from above, not the wisdom that is from below, because it's earthly, sensual, and devilish. And you're going to find that this is in the passage, because we're going to talk about how devilish it really is. But what we need to have is God's wisdom when we fight the root of pride, which often can cause anxiety. James is the only other passage outside of this text that uses the Proverbs 3.34 quotation. And that says, you know what it says, right? God gives, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. The difference between this text and that one is pride in this text is the root of anxiety. and that text, it's the root of conflict and division. So when people are proud, here's how you know it. They are controlled by fear and anxiety, and they are people who cause division and cause conflict in their church. That's one of the uh, expressions of pride. So the root of all worry and anxiety lies in the belief, let me say it, that what happens in your life is ultimately in your hands. Can I say it again? The root of worry and anxiety lies in the belief that what happens in your life is ultimately in your hands. And if you think that what happens in your life is ultimately in your hands, that'll be pride. And that is why when it's in your hands, you respond the way you do. And that's why pride comes, because you're anxious about it, because you think that you're the one who ultimately is in control, and then you start being angry, and you cause conflict and divisions with people. You know why? Because you're going after them, because you think you can control it. See? But on the other hand, let me put it this way, humility is the belief that what happens in your life is ultimately in God's hands. And that frees you. Humility frees you from anxiety because I don't have to go after people. I don't have to have my way. I don't have to be right. I don't have to, I don't have, to have those things. But when I have to have them because my identity is wrapped up in them, see, I, and, and I get anxious because I have to have my right because here's what I believe. It's in my hands and I can control it. I need to control it. Now, thankfully, in the text, you can't see it on the surface, but let me show it to you. There's a, a perfect example that Peter gives us about what that kind of pride 
looks like when you try to make sure that everything is under your power and control instead of God's hands. Look at the text. Let me read it with you again. Verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, read it, under the mighty hand of God. Now, here's how you do a Bible study. Ready? I looked up every reference under the mighty hand of God. It is a, a often quoted phrase in the Old Testament, 16 times, 12 out of 16, three quarters of the time. It is used to talk about the exodus from Egypt. So the phrase that God delivered them out of Egyptian bondage and the phrase is how he did it was with his mighty hand. And sometimes it's even his mighty hand on his outstretched arm. Those were the descriptive terms. So it's almost like shorthand. Like when you hear, and God did this with his mighty hand, immediately, if you're familiar with Old Testament scripture, you could think of the Exodus. You would think of, oh, that's how God delivered them. Now, the person in the Exodus that would not humble himself under the mighty hand of God. And let me be even more specific. Put this in your notes. Mighty hand of God equals plagues in Egypt. Because the mighty hand of God was all of the 10 plagues that he brought on Egypt. And who was the person who would not humble himself? Yes, Pharaoh. In fact, let me read the text for you because I wrote it down. Oh, I thought I did. Here it is. Exodus 10.3. Listen to this, how closely it is to the exact text we're reading. Pharaoh would not humble himself under God's mighty hand. And this is what God asks Pharaoh through Moses. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? How long will you refuse to humble yourself? And you know how, why he says how long? Because the text is on the eighth plague out of ten. In other words, here's Pharaoh. How, how is his pride kicked up? He thinks that he can control God. He thinks he can control what's happening in Egypt and in his life. He thinks, and he is one, two, three, all these plagues, seven. He's on number eight. It's the locust. And, he, and here's what God says. How many plagues do I got to bring in your life to show you that it's my hand, not yours, that's in control? How many do I got to do? And you know, and number eight, he says, oh, okay, I'm so sorry. Forgive my sins. And guess what? That was number eight. So you know he didn't mean it because you know there's a nine and a ten. And you know what number ten was? God had to take the life of his son. See, that's how full of pride he was. That's what an extreme example is. It looks like when you are so full of pride, which leads to anxiety, because you think that ultimately what's happening in your life is in your hands. And it took ten plagues for Pharaoh, including the loss of the life of his own son, before he put himself and humbled himself under God's mighty hand. And can I tell you then, even then he didn't do it because afterwards when he let them go, he pursued them. And it wasn't to the loss of his son's life and, and hundreds if not thousands of military men in his own army. He lost all of those people. Why? Pride. Pride. Because he thought everything was under the control of his own hands. Maybe God brought you here tonight and says, listen, I know you face anxiety. I know you're going through it, but do you realize why you go through it? How many months do you have to go through it? How many doctors do you have to go to? How many situations do you have? How sick do you have to make yourself? How many situations do you have to ruin in relationships that may be put to the side because you won't recognize that you have anxieties and what really causes them? 
See, God, and now you get the text. Listen to what it says. He wouldn't humble himself under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. At the proper time. See, aren't these the two things that drive us crazy in anxiety? We want to believe, right, that everything is under the control of our hands. Ready? And we are the one who has the better wisdom to know what needs to be going on and when it needs to happen. Isn't that us? You never been there? When you think, and you're anxious over it, and you're afraid, because here's what you, I know it should be like this, my life, and I know that this event should happen now, and this should not happen now, and I know it, but it's not working out that way, and it's blowing my mind, and it's making me anxious, and I try to control it all, and put it in its place, and have the events happen when they should happen, and how they should happen, and you can't do it. See, what you don't realize, that's pride. Because you're not letting God control it with his mighty hand. See, he'll, he will exalt, not you exalt, not get you out of it in your time, in your way, his way. Pharaoh wouldn't do it. And look what the Bible says, that you exalt him in due time. That's why the proverb is, God opposes pride. Think again. What does opposition from God look like? It looks like the ten plagues. It looks like God having to take his, son of, his son's life to get his attention. See, God opposes it. It's the word to resist. It's the word to put your hand in someone else's face. See, when every time you think you know what's best and you think you know when it's best, God will begin to oppose you because what you're doing is resisting his grace. See, that's what God resists the proud, opposes them. You know why? Because God is anti-pride because pride is anti-grace. Right? So God puts his hand, and every time you think you know better than him, you are on a collision course with God and others. That's why the James 4 passage says, when pride takes over your life, there is wars and fightings among you. And all, every, why? Why? Because that's what happens. You get in a collision course with God vertically and others horizontally. And that's why people who are filled with pride are often people who easily get their feelings hurt. Why? Because they're looking and focusing on themselves. It happens in marriage all the time. But it, it takes God's super, literally supernatural work to get husbands and wives to see it. They think it's always the other person. I mean, it's hard to get people to concentrate on themselves. It really is. You're talking about themselves, and they want to talk about the other person the entire time. You know why? Because that's pride. Pride is full of hurt feelings, and they want to say, look what they've done, look what they've done. You know why? Because our focus is on ourselves, our self-absorption, and we didn't get what we want. We didn't get treated how we wanted to be treated. Humility is the opposite of that. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. A lot of people think modern view of humility is I think less of, oh, I'm not really that great. And you know, oh, thank you, but you know, I'm not really all that. That's not humility. That's false humility at best. But biblically, it's not thinking less of yourself, but humility in the Bible is thinking of yourself less. Thinking of yourself less. So in your marriage, what would happen instead of thinking of yourself 
as the focus. What if you thought less, thinking of yourself less? What would happen in your marriage? I bet there would, you know, I've, I've come to, this is a great, watch, this is a great principle. Do you know you can't have a fight with only one person? You can't. I wonder what conflict in marriage, I wonder what conflict at your job would be like. Conflict in your family. I wonder what would happen if you thought of yourself less. Humility says this, listen, God, I don't know what's coming and I don't know when it's going to stop or if it's going to stop, but I know this, you are in control and you care about me. That's what humility says. So what would it look like? Let me paint a picture for you in the last few minutes. What does humility, submission under God's mighty hand look like? That's why verse 7 starts with a participle, an aorist participle, and it says casting. It's the way that you show that you've humbled yourself under God's mighty hand. When you have put yourself under God's authority, his sovereignty, his wisdom, his love, when you've done that, Here's what it'll look like. You will take your concerns, your anxieties, and you will throw them on him. You know why? Because here's why pride halts humility and and expresses itself in anxiety. You know why? Anxiety believes because it's proud and arrogant that I I am wise enough and strong enough to handle these things. Humility is needed. Why? Because you can only have relief from them and solve them the biblical way and have peace instead of anxiety. You can only do that when you come to the realization that you cannot, that you have anxieties and you are not wise enough and you are not strong enough, that you are weak. And then when you can't handle it, here's what people who can't handle it do. They cast them on the Lord. That's what he wants us to do. And the reason we can cast all of our, not some of our anxieties, not the ones that are just, you know, low enough that a pastor or, you know, the the biblical counsel, no, all of them, no matter how serious, all of your anxieties, which is the opposite flip side of Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing. That's the negative way of saying what this passage is saying. Take all of your anxieties and throw them on Jesus' back. And here's what he wants you to know. Why? How can you do that? Because... He cares for you. It is not, the answer to anxiety is not the humility that says, oh, just that God is sovereign in control. That puts God way up here, which he is, right? He is sovereign on the throne in control, but it also brings God right in here. We need a God who's way up there, sovereign, all wise. That is absolutely crucial. But we also need a God who is imminent as well as transcendent, who comes right into your life, understands your fears, your anxieties, and he comes right up close and says, throw them on me. I've carried heavier than this. And he says, come, let me come close. He cares for you. He loves you. Maybe this will move you a little bit. Think of this. Every time that you give in to anxiety and let it control you in a sinful way, you are mistrusting and saying, God really doesn't love me like he says he does. That's what anxiety is. You're afraid that he can't control it. You're afraid that he isn't wise enough to handle it. And you're afraid that he doesn't love you enough to do what you think he should be doing. So there's, a, there's three reasons, three anxiety attackers. The first one is the flesh. The second one is the devil. 
And you read verses 8 and 9, be sober, be vigilant, is the King James, right? Be watchful for your adversary, the devil. And you're almost like, where did that come from? I mean, he's just throwing this stuff in there about Satan all of a sudden. Why? Why? Let me tell you this. He's not moving on to a new subject. This isn't one subject and another one, the next one's different. Any more than Ephesians 4 says, remember it says, be angry and sin not, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. And then the next phrase is, and don't give place to the devil. You're going like, what? How'd you throw that one in there? You know why? Here's why, listen. 1 Timothy 3, don't pick a preacher, your preacher to be a novice, lest he be lifted up with pride and fall into the trap of the devil. Those passages are not just throwing the devil in there as an aside. Here's what it's saying. When you have pride and, you, and it causes anxiety, and, and you let that anger unleash in your life, you know what you're doing? You're letting Satan in. So let me tell you this. This is strong, but this is true. A panic attack can be because it's a satanic attack. So panic and satanic can actually become together. Because here's what happens. When pride takes over in your life and you no longer trust God's sovereignty, wisdom, or love, guess what? You have now, let me quote Ephesians 4.27, you have given a place, English, opportunity for the devil. The devil can get into your life a satanic attack. It's an opportunity for him to start taking over and ruining things. Now, before you get too crazy, let me give you what that means. The devil takes opportunities through your sin. When you get sinfully proud, when you get sinfully anger, angry, when you get sinfully anxious, here's what he does. He binds those together and uses them as a platform to get into your life and start ruining and destroying and devouring you. So let me give you the principle. You know how you deal with the devil? You deal with your sin. It's not an exorcism. It's not casting him out. It's not saying, Satan, I bind you in the name of Jesus. Don't go with that stuff. That doesn't do a thing. You know how you deal with the devil? You deal with your sin. Get rid of the opportunities that you're giving him by not being a person who can control their pride and their anger and their anxiety. If you ever read C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, he gives these two opposing views of, or extreme opposite views of the devil that we both need to be aware of because neither one of them are right. The one is he calls superstition. You know what superstition is? It's over-believing in someone or something, right? I have family members who are charismatic and, and I'm with them and they'll say, oh, you know, Pastor Walker, I was casting out the demon of alcoholism and I was casting out the demon of filthy language in my mouth. And I, was, I said, I said my, you don't need to cast out anything. Stop drinking. Stop cussing. You don't have to deal with the devil by saying, come out of him. No. You know what you do? Stop doing sin. That's how you deal with the devil. You deal with your sin. But there are people who believe there's a devil and a demon behind every bush, every tree, and everywhere you go, everything is caused by him. Oh, it's Satan, and I got to really get rid of him and cast. You know, no, that's not, never does the Bible ever say in the New Testament epistles that that's how you deal with the devil Jesus did it, and Paul did it with supernatural power, but you're not them, nor is it the same time period. Here's how you deal with it in our day. You work through it by working and dealing with your own sin. But there's superstition. Satan's behind everything. But there's the other extreme, and maybe some of us on the survey were closer to this, and that is, you probably never heard this word, substition is the opposite of superstition. It means underbelief. In other words, I don't believe Satan really does anything. Is he really even a real person? And there's such a disbelief today that the devil actually exists. And Peter would say, oh, he does. He does. 
Satan, it says, you got to be watchful and alert. You know why? Because his main thing he likes to do to people is put pride in their lives. See, the devil is full of pride himself. That's why pride is the root of your anxiety. He loves to get that in you because he knows it destroyed him and he'll destroy you with it. So it's not just devil is everything or the devil is nothing. It's not either one of those things. It's that the devil has a part and an influence and sometimes in your life, but you also at the same time have responsibility. It's a tension we have to keep. But whether how much Satan's involved in your temptations and sin, I don't know. But I know this, you are 100% responsible for every choice and decision and response that you make in your life. Every one of them. And the way that you fight him, and you'll see in verse 9, resist him, what? Firm in the faith. That's how you resist him. So it's not just a fleshly thing, anxiety. It's a devilish thing. That's how serious it is. Listen to William Gurnall, who was a 1700s Puritan. He wrote a book called Christian in Complete Armor. Listen to what he says. If men hear a noise at night, they cry, the devil, the devil, and run for their lives. But they carry the devil around in their hearts with them all day. For if you have a proud spirit, or if you have resentment or anxiety, you are under his power. He is setting you in a precarious place. That's our opportunity word. My friends, why don't you run from your pride, crying the devil, the devil? Why don't you run from your resentment and your grudges and your bitterness and your anxiety? Why don't you run from them, yelling the devil, the devil? And see, he's, he's, he's got it right. We think the devil is this when, you know, people float in the air and their head spins around on some of these crazy horror movies. That's not the devil. The devil is your arrogance and mine and our pride and our anxiety. You know, Paul said in Ephesians 6, 12, listen to this, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this age. So that's why he says, you know how important it is to watch anxiety and pride in your life be sober be vigilant because your adversary the anti one the one who is against you there's a battle going on every time you face anxiety every time you give into it there's a battle going on well how serious is that battle well satan would like to use it in this way like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour he wants to devour means to swallow up it's used of a flood he wants to drown you in your anxiety. He wants to fill you so you're deceived and you don't even see the pride that you have in your life. But how do we get past him? Verse 9 says, resist him. Firm in the faith. And the word firm in verse 9 is the word steroids. We need a faith on steroids. <laughs> it's the English word. We need a strong faith that stands. James said the same thing. James 4, 7. Resist the devil. Resist him. Put your hand in his face. Resist him and he will flee from you. But how do you do it? You have to have a strong faith. You have to know what God says. You have to know what the Bible says. You know, I have to have you know what it says about pride. And you have to know what he says about anxiety. But notice he says at the end, and I'll close with this. We cannot fight the devil alone. And if you think, and this is, can I tell you, I'm just going to be on my hobby horse here. This is why we all need to start coming back to church. You know why? 
because you had a year off without anybody challenging you, keeping you accountable about what's going on in your life. And you may have developed attitudes. You haven't had to react with people. You haven't had to respond to people. You haven't had anybody but maybe who's ever at home with you disagree with you much. You haven't been here. You haven't had to make any public decision. You haven't you have to have to live your faith in front of anybody. And you know what? You can think that you're doing pretty good, but you could be really wrong. See, here's what he says. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood. So you know how we're supposed to get past our anxiety? Together. <laughs> Together. That's why we have D groups and small groups. Why? We need community to get over it. Vertically, we need to have God's hand in our life. We saw his mighty hand. But horizontally, we need hands of each other. We need to hold hands with each other and be under, God, under God's hand and with your hand. See, it's both those hands. That's how we stand. That's how we face the devil. That's how we fight him. Lastly, and I'm just going to say it, the first attacker, anxiety attacker, is the flesh. The second one is the devil. The third one, you guessed it, is the world. The world, the flesh, and the devil he says, your brotherhood, listen, throughout the world, I want you to know tonight that you are not alone in fighting anxiety. Sometimes the world comes crashing in on you and it leads to depression. You think that you're all by yourself. Can I tell you, you never are. Not when you have God and other Christians. There are other Christians throughout the world. And let me tell you this, that phrase for me, throughout the world, you know what I put by my text, my Bible? I put perspective. Because I think I have it hard, and I think, wow, I have it rough, and, and I have these fears, and I have these worries and concerns, and then I read about people in other countries and what they're going through, and I go, mine's not that bad. <laughs> I don't worry about whether I'm walking three miles today so that I can have drinking water that's pure. I, that isn't me. And I get perspective. Your brotherhood throughout the world, and there are other places, Peter's telling him, that people who suffer as much or more than you do. And, and, and we need to get perspective. What kind of perspective? Here's the last thing. He says two things. Verse 10 and verse 11. He says, after you suffered a little while, it's also a phrase used in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, verse 6. And then he says later on, Christ has called you to eternal glory. Can I tell you what we need? To overcome anxiety, you need perspective, not on just what's going around you with other people, but you need to know this. Our suffering, as bad as it is, and the things that might tempt you to struggle with anxiety. They are bad and they are difficult, but they're just for a little while. But in Christ Jesus, you know what you have? Eternal glory. Verse 11 says, and his dominion is forever and ever, un literally unto the ages of the ages. See, you've got to have perspective if you're going to face fears and anxieties that even though it's difficult, it's just a little while compared to when I respond correctly and biblically to it, eternal glory, and forever and ever and ever. It gives us perspective. And that's what the God of all grace, that's how this paragraph 5 and 5, 5 and 5, 10 talks about God gives grace, and the end of it says God gives grace. The whole anxiety package of how you need to do it is responding to God's grace in your life, his goodness, his kindness that he's given to you in Christ Jesus. That's a lot of information tonight. And I've gone a few minutes over. I hope you'll pardon me. But this is such an important subject tonight. And I hope that you'll re-listen to that and keep going over this passage and memorize it in your life. Put it into practice as you face anxiety. Realize, realize how important it is and that you can handle it by God's grace. Father, help us. Help us. We struggle 
Uh, We are but thus. We are human. We are frail. But never let those be excuses because you've given us everything we need for life and godliness, 2 Peter 1.3, everything. So Lord, I pray that we would not have to be controlled by fear, anxiety, pride that cause and are the sources of our, our difficulties, but rather we would address them and the attackers of our lives in your way for your glory, that you might get the glory and we might get the good. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.